Use my name. The street. Talk, motherfucker. My name is my name. This is My Name Is My Name, an anomalous humanities podcast with APS. Today I sit down with Andrew Diltz, an assistant professor of political science at Loyola Marymount University in L.A. So today is sort of a follow-up to the conversation with Joshua Dubler last time. It deals with prisons again. That's the focus of Andrew Dilt's research. Uh, He treats prisons sort of as bringing together all sorts of problems in American democracy, especially as it relates to the racial grounding of American democracy, a grounding that operates through, as many of us know, exclusion. he does a pretty good job of explaining what happens in his book. I will say that if you get a chance, you definitely should pick up Punishment and Inclusion. It's a pretty remarkably wide-ranging work of political philosophy. And if you're interested in theoretical work on prison, uh, you should definitely check it out. And also look for the Abolition Journal that um, he is involved with. Uh, we talk about that in the show. Um, this brings together academics, but also people outside of the academy, activists who are working to abolish prisons. When I started the podcast, I thought I would do some book reviews, uh, in part just because, you know, I like blogging less and less. While this isn't a book review of sorts, I did want to make some comments about a recent review that Dominic Fox wrote about Alexander Galloway's Laurel Against the Digital. You can find this review at Reviews 31 which is another one of these online review sites that gets out reviews about academic books a lot quicker than traditional journals do. Now, I think I'm more annoyed by Dom Fox's review than Alexander Galloway is based off of Alex's recent blog post. I think it suffers from something I saw a lot in English academia, where the assumption is always that whoever you're reading is sort of a fucking idiot, and you line up a bunch of criticisms, uh, you line up a bunch of gotchas, where you pull out uh, weird bits in the writing or little odd mistakes, and you lay them out as a litany of reasons why this is the fucking idiot. It's perhaps the most annoying thing about having an English PhD was living through that. I think it's probably only really found in the US in Ivy League schools. And so of course it's dripping with the usual pretension and privilege that comes from those institutions. But that's at the level of style. Is there anything about my annoyance that has to do with the actual substance of the book review? Well, yeah. 
You find this a lot in people who read Laruel, sort of assuming that there's nothing there, and so they look to make sure there's nothing there. And there's plenty of reasons why uh, you pick up a Laruel book and put it down again. He's not readily accessible in the way that Alain Badu is, for example, who writes rather simply about his philosophy. And he doesn't have the same hype as someone like Derrida, to pick another French philosopher, whose difficulty uh, new readers will often look past in order to try and prove to themselves that they get what other people get. So, in the review, Dom Fox claims that Laruel wants to sort of abolish philosophy. This is just simply false. Philosophy is not, like Dom Fox says, the Terminator, though I assume he means the liquid terminator i don't know i haven't seen these movies since i was a child where every time you defeat it it just you know reforms into something new re reconstitutes itself laurel's whole point is that this is what philosophy is always doing non-philosophy isn't at all like a battle between the terminator and you know an ordinary human being it's rather a learned indifference to philosophy's demands upon the human being Non-philosophy probably wouldn't make a very exciting Hollywood movie, but it never promises to. Which is sort of the other problem I had with the review. He claims that Laruel has a promise. Laruel doesn't promise anything. Laruel's non-philosophy is not the solution. It's not a good, you know, thing to put on a research profile. It's more like a tool, and while we might want to say that tools have promises, but when you pick up a material tool, when you pick up a microphone, when you pick up a hammer, it has a very different promise than when you take out $80,000 in student loan debt to do a philosophy degree. Non-philosophy doesn't promise you happiness. It doesn't promise you a better understanding of the world. In fact, it rejects the whole notion of the world and instead asks, what would it be to think philosophy, to treat philosophy as the object of study? And it does so by first rejecting philosophy's sufficient faith, the notion that philosophy would be able to say something about anything. It says, well, philosophy can't say anything about itself without simply hallucinating itself, without sort of seeing itself like the chubby 40-year-old man sees himself when he puts on his Speedo thinking that he's still sexy. And I also think Tom Fox does a real disservice to the difference between politics and ethics that Alexander Galloway develops in his book. He makes a reference to the Black Lives Matter campaign and where Laruel sees politics as the realm of decision, of antagonism, of always creating a separation like Carl Schmitt between friend and enemy, well then politics is simply philosophy by other means. Ethics, however, is an internal mutation of philosophy. Here Laruel takes very seriously the work of Emmanuel Levinas. But he still criticizes this sort of ethical philosophy for remaining too philosophical, for thinking that it is the answer. Okay, so against the dominant form of politics, which is always again philosophical, Laruel focuses on what he calls the generic. And Dom Fox confuses this generic with being more inclusive. And so now I'll quote, to take a contemporary example, the slogan Black Lives Matters is properly political because it indexes the racist violence of the state against, specifically, black people. To expand this slogan so that it is more inclusive, rendering it as All Lives Matter or, most odiously, Cops Lives Matter too, is to weaken this distinction and to disavow the antagonism. It is a depoliticizing move. 
But the properly generic statement, which is no longer a political slogan at all, but rather an ethical maxim, would be simply, Life matters. He then goes on to write, A statement such as, Life matters, is both all-encompassing and vacuous. It could as well serve as an advertising slogan for Nestle's breast milk substitute. The digital clarity of political antagonism, however, tendentious, its categories may yet be preferable to such analog warm fuzziness." Unquote. So this sort of attempting to be more inclusive is actually a political move par excellence, something Andrew Diltz gets at actually. Though, of course, he's not a Larwellian and I wouldn't want to put that on him. But the properly generic statement would not be that black lives matter, but blackness matters. One of the things Galloway's book does really well is discuss Laurel's anti-capitalism. That anti-capitalism exists in the refusal of circulation. Laurel's argument regarding the refusal of circulation is isomorphic to the argument of some black studies scholars regarding the way that blackness does not circulate. Blackness matters precisely because blackness alone, not decided in black-white relation, is precisely without world. And in Laruel, that's good news, because the world is philosophy, the world is harassment. So the point of genericity is not to say that life matters. Life is too transcendental, it's too philosophical, it's again too harassing. But to say that blackness matters precisely because it is imminent and it is lived. And of course, this is political, but only in the sense of a lived politics. It's not political at the level of the state, which is often what Larwell means by politics. So the point isn't to bring this lived life into politics. It's not to include it in the world, but it's to say that politics, that life, that the world has to be subject to it, that it has to undergo that blackness, to use this example still. I think Galloway gets at this and expands upon it when he writes, In any case, the ethical is a question of the withdrawal of the law. What replaces a law is not so much a new super law, a new law of laws, but the absence of all mundane commandments in favor of a single principle of unification. For this reason, the ethical is best understood as a kind of virtualization because it withholds decision in favor of a superposition of indistinction. Unquote. And you might be thinking, well, that doesn't seem to be like what you said, but it's precisely what I said, because blackness in this case is indistinct from whiteness, because whiteness is not part of the equation. If blackness is distinct from world, it's free from whiteness. It's free from that exchange with whiteness. Now, this is all, you know, somewhat abstract, but it makes more sense in Laurel's works on victims, which is not for him a position of weakness or a place to be pitied, but precisely the place where insurrection happens. And it's clear when Galloway continues to write, and this is why, while there are many possible forms of political organization, there is only one kind of ethical organization, communism, a truth promulgated by Jesus just as much as by Marx. And Galloway gets at it again in his chapter on the generic when he writes about the Haitian Revolution, writing, Against the backdrop of revolution and black Jacobin terror, the axiom in the Haitian constitution that all citizens are black can be understood only as an ethical claim, not a political one, even if endless political battles had to be fought in the hopes of achieving it. Unquote. So I just think it's really unfair to cast... Laurel's thinking on politics and Galloway's presentation of it in this very sort of end of history liberal milk toast way. It's not about inclusion, it's about all citizens are black, which is a form of inclusion maybe, 
but it is very different than the usual sense of the word. Galloway's book is good on a number of other things as well. He presents the standard model of philosophy, which is a really good summary of the way in which non-philosophy understands philosophy. And he also just has really wonderful chapters on aesthetics. And if you're interested in art and contemporary theory of art, and have been wondering if Laruel has anything to offer in terms of thinking about that, then Galloway's book, I think, is the place to go. As well as John Malarkey's earlier work on Laruel and film. Alright, I don't know, most of you probably skipped past this. That's totally fine. Because this conversation with Andrew Diltz is really what today is all about. afterwards about your setup some too because i've started not doing podcast stuff but doing more interviews okay and i just don't have any gear oh okay. and they sound because uh, i had this hope like well cool we can publish the transcript and then online they can i was like no we yeah. can't ever put this online anywhere <laughs> like it's so badly <laughs> um it's a skype phone call and it sounds worse than a skype phone call so oh uh, so i'll, I'll send you advice, some stuff yeah, yeah no yeah, that's easy it's for this thing i've been working in the abolition journal and trying to generate content um and not having to demand of especially folks of color non-academics to like write something for us right like i'm just going to talk to you and then we'll, we'll create a piece that way yeah and i don't have to demand your unpaid labor in quite the same yeah, way yeah that's but it's no that's a really good idea yeah we should talk about that yeah Let, let's, i'm totally new to it but yeah let's talk about the abolition journal okay actually. let's start there okay um so we'll eventually go back and like talk about your your like development and everything but um the abolition journal it's an academic thing but it's also not an academic thing so can you can you talk a little bit about how that came to be and what its purpose is yeah so the way you put it actually is really nice that it's an academic thing but it's not an academic thing that's sort of that captures exactly the struggle that we're having and the goal that we're having at the same time i think um so it came out though of a very particular um moment mostly amongst a group of political scientists that I know, young political scientists who increasingly were trying to find ways to do the work they wanted to do around decolonization, around abolitionist theory, around radical environmental theory, um, and do that work while they're trying to find their way in the academy, but also not just doing the same thing over and over again. So uh, two years ago uh, at the Western Political Science Association meeting, which sort of has a history of being a very theory-friendly and continental theory-friendly political science conference. Um, there's a lot of overlap in the kind of folks who would go to SPEP, who would go to Philosophia, who would also go to the Western political science for whatever reason. Uh, we organized, I was part of a group of, of folks who organized a mini conference at that conference on uh, called Rad Poli Sci, Radical and Decolonial Political Science. And at the end of that, uh, we put together six panels. We had great sort of response. The, the, the Western political science people gave us space on the program mm -hmm. and let us just run our own sort of separate mini conference there. Um, we said, well, what should we do with these papers? Well, let's publish them. And the first thing we started doing was looking for a place to publish them that was, A, going to be supportive of that kind of work, and then, B, be open access um, and not behind paywalls. Mm. And really quickly, there were very few options to do that. And so the conversation turned almost on a dime to, well, then why don't we just create a space to do that? And so at that point, it was really sort of a group of, I think, five or six folks um, who sort of were pitched this idea. We spent some time doing some collaborative writing of sort of, um, for lack of a better term, we're calling it sort of the manifesto of what it was we wanted to do. 
Um, but then I think the, the, the really important turning point was then us deciding, well, if we're going to do this precisely to try and create a, a different kind of space is we need to stop assuming that those spaces don't already exist other places that we're just not a part of. So we have to, we have to redo this. So mm-hmm. we started building a much longer list of folks outside of political science, um, underrepresented folks in the academy, and started building a, a collective structure that the first job of that would be to start over from scratch again and think about what abolition journal would look like when it wasn't five or six people with a very specific problem, but a broader set of folks having that conversation. Um, And so that now that's been almost two years ago when those conversations really started. And we very quickly got a lot of great responses from folks doing radical work, people who are doing radical philosophic work, radical um, activist work Mm -hmm. who wanted to do this, but then became a question of like, okay, cool. So what does it mean now that the we here has changed dramatically and what are we going to do with that? Um, and that tension you sort of noted, is it an academic thing? Is it not an academic thing? Has been sort of the ongoing question that we keep uh, coming back to again and again. And part of that's about membership. Mm-hmm. Um, why should we assume from the start that academics aren't doing activist work, especially given that a lot of the folks who um, the academics on this are also people who are systematically underemployed and unemployed in the academy. Mm-hmm. So why assume that the goal for this is to get us access to that institution, which is already pushing people out dramatically mm-hmm. through adjunctification, through incredibly poor paying labor in the academy? They're already doing some of that work. And so that divide right there doesn't make sense from that side. But also there's a really pernicious and long history of academics taking from grassroots theory, from movement theory, and then just turning it into um, academic commodity and not being accountable to the places that came from. Hmm. Um, so the process we're in right now is, again, a further sort of expansion of the collective. Um, in this case, to, to intentionally not ask people whose primary uh, mode of being is academic, but is primarily in uh, activist or artistic or... Uh, movement organizing work um, to bring them into the collective to to make sure that that space isn't just an academic space and then think about what would it mean to do a journal then that reflected that kind of a makeup Um, and one of the places that that plays out most dramatically is well what does something like peer review look like Mm. why assume well do we still want to have something like that as a practice that we read each other's work and criticize and comment upon it to improve it but not presume that we knew in advance who counts as peers um, and not bracket in advance that the peer is obviously going to be drawn from some community as opposed to another community. And so we're, we're literally in a place right now where we're trying to figure out well, what will the rules be? How will it work? Will we have uh, every submission, every uh, article or interview or essay or piece of artwork, will it be reviewed by someone in the academy and by someone who's not? Will there be a two-to-one ratio? Like, how are we going to do it? And yeah. we haven't arrived, I think, at those firm rules yet, in part because of the nature of doing uh, long-distance organizing through consensus. Yeah. <laughs> Which is hard. They don't get the, the hand-wavy motions that yeah. happen. In it turns the, out it's hard to do hand waves yeah. on, on conference calls <laughs> with 20 people. So yeah. we've tried to fill out what are, what are procedures that will reflect real deep consensus, but also won't just become empty procedures. Um, so that we could think about questions like, well, what, what will it mean to peer review something for this when our goal is precisely to challenge the existing peer review system to decarcerate, decolonize university spaces mm-hmm. to work towards the abolition of not just prisons and not just uh, 
um, you know, human trafficking and not just environmental justice, but abolition of the university as we know mm. it, right? right? What will that sort of look like? So the way we're doing that is there's going to be sort of a, we're at work sort of internally on what we're calling issue zero. So it'll be sort of a, um, <laughs> Uh, a coming out party name, yeah, yeah okay. i know right it, it has that overturn as well no one doesn't like the idea and everyone jumped on it so quickly i was like well that some, we're tapping into something with issue zero that's nice yeah. which will all be internally produced from members of the collective that hopefully our goal right now is we'll include the first open call for submissions hmm. that will head us into basically the launching of of this journal and in a certain degree what it's going to look like is going to depend on who shows up Right, and mm-hmm. both in the sense of submissions, but also in terms of whose contributions to the collective uh, help shape that direction. Um, I think it is, it, it's been a very slow process for the right reasons, as opposed to simply that we're running, we can't do the hand signs as quickly. Yeah. <laughs> but it's because, it, to a certain degree, if there's going to be um, decentering of the overrepresented voices in both the academy and who amongst activists get viewed from outside of those communities. It's got to be self-consciously reflective, slow, and um, it's got to be sort of decarceral and abolitionist in how it functions Mm -hmm. without knowing in advance sort of what that means. Yeah. Um, So it's like both really exciting, but it also, it's hard to say what it's going to be because it isn't there yet. Yeah. The, the one principle I, I like to come back to, one of our members of our collective is uh, Harsha Walia, uh, who wrote a wonderful book called Undoing Border Imperialism. And she writes there oh, yeah. very... Jack, Jack uh, teaches that. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I, I just taught some chapters of it, too. It's a fantastic book. I did an interview with her recently. Hopefully, we'll oh, cool. put it in, in the journal. Um, and she talks a lot, very well, I think, about ideas other people have used, too, but about prefiguration, mm-hmm. right? And so that if you're building your social movements and you're building your movement organizations around concrete specific goals, far too often the immediacy of getting to those goals destroys how you're moving towards them. And so to counter that is the idea, well, let's let's make sure that our movement organizations, let's make sure our communities are prefigurative of the world that we're trying to reach. So to a certain degree, I, I, I like to think of what we're, the, the difficulties we're having and the challenges we're having of organizing a journal are from us trying to be prefigurative, like we're gonna produce the journal in the way we would like the world more generally to function. Mm, mm, Um, Which might mean slower, more self-reflective, more radical, uh, more willing, and maybe more focused on questioning the underlying structures as opposed to the symptoms that pop up here and there, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of interesting. It takes a a sort of negative name uh, to, to start trying to prefigure something else um and and your work um your work on prisons and punishment um and how it extends outside once you're outside as well for some people in some states mm-hmm. um through disenfranchisement and uh, another theorist have looked at other ways um yeah i think is uh it's really interesting it's really important um uh do you see it as a primarily negative form of uh, engagement in that you know I like the that. academic sense of negative. Yeah, no, no, I like that. Um, so the language I tend to use a lot, um, part of it's because I love and I'm terrified of Adorno, so I have trouble with negatives. But, okay. but, but, but like, it, I know yeah. that's sort of the space that often I'm thinking of when, that, when I think about that, but it's, it's sort of productive failures. Okay. So I've gotten more and more interested in failure 
um, as a way of thinking through this stuff. And so in the book, I use this as sort of a framing device for the whole thing of saying that part of the difficulty, and this is for me, it comes from Foucault, right? And it comes specifically from Foucault's analysis and Discipline and Punish, where he says, um, part of, of course, the difficulty about talking about the history of the prison is the prison has always been a failure. And so one question you can always ask is, well, why is it failing? The other question is, well, what is being produced by that failure? Um, and so working on this project around voting rights, you know, when I first started thinking about it in graduate school, um, I think I wrote three or four versions of the master's paper, which was, aha, I figured out, here's the new theoretical framework we're going to use to end this terrible practice. The liberals didn't figure it out. The Republicans didn't figure it out. But a deliberative democratic theory will get us there, right? Mm. And then sort of this great moment of conversation with one of my advisors was like, well, but isn't it interesting that the constant critique and questioning of this practice seems to be part of how it keeps functioning, which is totally just simple Foucauldian move. Mm. I'm like, okay, cool. So what is being produced by something which fails on all of the terms that it's supposed to uh, succeed on? Um, so for me, some I start from that. So what are the productive failures that we face? And then if you're going to think about that on the sort of the back end, well, then just reasserting successes and positive maybe uh, proposals is to then forget that where you started from was, well, productive failures is what sort of drives things. Mm. Um, so in the end of the book, I turn back to Simone de Beauvoir in particular and her articulation in The Ethics of Ambiguity about how the condition of ethics is failure. What would it mean to take Beauvoir's insight about ethics and think about that in terms of politics? Mm. What if what you wanted to talk about was not how do we have a successful criminal justice system, but what if justice functions through failure? And what would justice as failure, instead of maybe justice as fairness, right, but justice mm -hmm. as failure, force us to do in other registers? Uh, and for me, that also came out of part of thinking of like, well, what would happen if uh, Zimmerman had been convicted of the murder of Trayvon Martin, would that have been a success? And to what degree would that success have further supported a series of other systematic racialized failures? So fine, I still want him to be convicted, but I don't want to have been in a position, position where that's the thing that I want. Yeah. <laughs> so if we're only thinking in terms of success versus failure, we have a problem. If we can have a differentiation or different kinds of failings and different failures, that might be, in that sense, a different productive way to go. Mm -hmm. And it might require rethinking failure itself. And, and I'm not, I mean, I think uh, queer theorists who've done really good reclamations on this, mm -hmm. right, and even the, the disagreements between Edelman and Halberstam, right, um, are still really interesting ways to think like, well, if maybe failure is precisely the place we should be um, drawing our attention to as itself a productive resource, because it has always been really productive, but maybe not towards liberatory ends, hmm. but towards uh, ends of imminence and closure rather than of transcendence of some kind. So I, and I end up in a sort of funny place where I both want to still be kind of existentialist. I still want to be really Foucauldian. I still want to be really queer. I still want to be abolitionist and remember sort of, well, negative abolition without positive abolition, without another form of negative abolition, maybe becomes overly dialectical, I don't know, <laughs> right, is never going to actually be abolition. Mm. And this is part of Joy James's point. When Joy mm -hmm. James says, well, it's not that abolition failed following the Civil War, it's that it succeeded in a very specific way through law. Um, what would it have meant, following Du Bois, right, for a positive abolition to have occurred, that the conditions of freedom were actually generated for former slaves, um, as opposed to just the absence now of a formal institution like slavery? 
it would be a very different sort of thing. And, and we were chatting earlier. This is, I think, also Joel Olson's point, right? Mm-hmm. That abolition democracy requires this ongoing form of self, self-annihilation, self-abolition. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, it's neither abolitionist nor truly democratic, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that Joel's understanding of democracy requires this constant form of self-reflection and overcoming and in this case, listening to sometimes fanatical voices and radical voices and centering politics around them. Hmm. But in that sense, if that's how you're thinking about negative, then yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, this, this book, uh, Punishment and Inclusion, Race, Membership, and Limits of American Liberalism, um, you know, it comes out of your doctoral work. Am, am I right? In Originally, that? yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so you went to the University of Chicago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, did you uh, start off in political theory as an undergrad? No. Um, my bachelor's degree is in economics. Okay. Where, um, where was that at? Uh, Indiana. Okay. Uh, so I'm from Indiana. Uh, my dad taught there in the School of Journalism. I grew up in, in Bloomington, college town, and um, had a very good opportunity to get a good, a very good undergraduate education very cheaply mm-hmm. and took it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I was an econ major there. Um, but I got really lucky why was there i think in two ways one of them was i didn't really understand what economics as a discipline how it worked so Sounds i didn't like re- you were an economist yeah okay yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i didn't understand that it was a science at this point and that it was a timeless and eternal science of human behavior and the reason i didn't understand that was because indiana was one of the places at the time that had real economic history that mm-hmm. it was really a subfield um, and I didn't realize how rare that was until I got, I had a great, so that one opportunity was I was able to work with um, faculty there as an undergraduate who just thought it was totally normal that I wanted to read Adam Smith in economics classes and not just work through uh, mac- profit maximization equations and, right. you know, do differential equations all afternoon. Um, so I just, I didn't realize that's not what economics as a discipline had become. And the other thing is I had a chance then to study abroad at the London School of Economics for a year while I was in college. It was a really generous fellowship at Indiana that let me spend a year uh, at the LSE where I started reading journal articles mm-hmm. and both sort of was seeing also how um, the discipline of economics functions. But also in the UK, economics still understands itself as political economy right. more than under, even, even like very neoliberal yeah. would otherwise be right wing. But even they, it, economic history is the thing you have to study mm-hmm. if you're in the UK. And so when I came back in my last year at Indiana, I had a complete crisis because I realized there was no economics PhD program I should apply to. Mm. Um, went to my wonderful uh, senior thesis advisor, Roy Gardner, who passed away a few years ago, who's a game theorist, but uh, uh, was obsessed with the history of political and economic thought. He helped me do a long independent study where I read Marshall, read Smith, read Ricardo, actually read them and not textbooks about them. And then went to him and asked him, what the hell am I supposed to do with this now? Because I can't get into any economics PhD programs. And he seriously was like, well, political science, Hmm. political theory programs, you could do this. And so I applied to political theory programs all over the place, got into all but, uh, got into none of them, Hmm. except the University of Chicago. Hmm. Hmm. And there was a very sort of uh, interesting moment, I think. This was 2001. I would have been applying 2002. I started in the PhD program at Chicago where Chicago at that time was a very interesting place to study political theory. Um, Iris Marion Young was there. Uh, Jacob Levy was there. Patchen Markell was there. Um, Cass Sunstein was there. Uh, Kathy Cohen was there. So there was at all at one place, you had the spectrum of really amazing feminist and critical theorists and liberal theorists 
um, and critical race folks who were all in the same department. And it didn't last very long. <laughs> they were all in the same department for different reasons. But it meant, I think, there was an interesting space to be able to do, uh, to ask questions that traditional political theory programs I don't think typically encourage. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, I think the center of that was, um, I mean, I came there thinking I was going to do history of liberal thought. And within the first year of graduate courses, with all of those people, realized that what I wanted to be talking about was race and politics um, in a historical history of political thought way, but also in um, a post-structuralist and critical race theoretical way. Right, right. And for some crazy reason, they let me do it. Yeah. I don't know if, if that exists in that space anymore or any spaces like that anymore. Not in political science, maybe. Yeah. I'm not sure. But that no, I'm not either. I mean, yeah. I, uh, I worry about... The, the ways in which um, people are letting some of these things die um, for various material reasons, sometimes laziness, like mm -hmm. old old intellectuals get lazy and they mm -hmm. stop fighting to mm -hmm. keep to reproduce these spaces, which, you know, uh, maybe Lee Edelman has some insights on that. But yeah. um, uh, I know in your book you, you say that you use two methods, uh, textual analysis, and I can't remember the second one off the top of my head. Roughly genealogical. Okay, and yeah. and so um, you know, before I read it, I was kind of expecting it to be a lot of quant stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was really interesting. It's a, it's essentially a political philosophy book or a political theory book, um, and you you touch on a ton of stuff in the text. It's uh, pretty remarkable. Too much. I probably should have had a you know stronger editorial hand. Uh, I, I remember you told me that actually before, and I'm, I'm always like, oh, no, all the words matter. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I know what you're saying. I, uh, I probably write too much in my stuff too. So, um, But uh, I was just curious, as, uh, and you mentioned it just then, um, what actually caused you to start looking? Um, you know, you have this great metaphor in the book and also in the talk you just gave about uh, looking but not seeing. Mm -hmm. um, well, what allowed you to see that like race was so uh, important to studying punishment in America, especially, um, and and yet so not looked at by traditional political theorists? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in in two regards, this is the contingency of getting to be at a place like Chicago in that department at that time, so that uh, there's there's no systematic reason for it, but in my first year in graduate school, I was in seminars on um, political agency with Patch and Markell, uh, seminars on global justice with Iris Marion Young, and seminars on uh, political socialization with Kathy Cohen. And so the, the very the really narrow version, right, was a, a a graduate seminar on political socialization that Kathy was teaching where we had to write about some institution that was engaging in political social, so, socialization, which in political science is actually like a dead field. Political socialization, nobody studies anymore because about the only sort of robust finding was that, well, if your parents are Democrats, you're probably a Democrat too. <laughs> and like 30 years of work, that was kind of what they knew, right? Okay. <laughs> so it's sort of this dead field. And, but Kathy, coming from a um, both an empirical background, so a lot of her work was quantitative, but also a background in social movements study, and specifically around queer and radical um, black social movement study. Um, she was the one teaching this class, and she was like, you need to find some institution that no one writes about <laughs> and identify whether it's a socializing institution. 
Um, and it was, I mean, it, it, unless there was that kind of space that a first year graduate student in political science was going to be talking about race and politics from the very beginning, mm. which now this, I can probably, there's probably like five PhD programs in the country where race and politics is a central, understood as a central field to the study. And Chicago is one of them. Maybe UCLA is one of them. Maybe Berkeley. Like it's a really short list where that would be something you would do as a first year graduate student. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was where I started reading about prisons for the first time. And then it was just finding a project that I kept coming back to that sort of question. The second sort of key moment then was, I think I alluded to um, in the talk a little bit about, or maybe we were talking about earlier, about looking at it in the same very traditional way over and over again. Here is the, here's a phenomenon, here's a set of ideal principles, we apply that to the phenomenon, and then we will know what to do about that phenomenon. And having a, a coffee with Patrick Markell, who was just like, well, maybe the order is backwards. Why do we assume that the ideas and the frameworks have any uh, didn't come from precisely the thing that you were doing? Mm. Right. So you're trying to figure out how we're going to apply the liberative democratic theory to felon disenfranchisement, but isn't couldn't it just be the other way around that felons are only felons because they're disenfranchised? This isn't something we do to them. It's something that is constitutive of who they are. Mm. And if we stop disenfranchising felons, would felons go away? Well, no, but it would mean something different. Mm. And so that, I mean, I think this is, I can think of very few places where I've been lucky enough to have had both of those kinds of questions asked of me at a very early stage in my training. Um, that that would be the kind of thing I'd have to figure out for a paper. And then building a committee that would just start from the assumption that, like, no, critical theory is an appropriate approach. Uh, G genealogy is a real method and you mm -hmm. can actually do that and textual analysis isn't doesn't have to just be cambridge school history of thought what was on Locke's bookshelf that mm -hmm. we knew this is what he was referring to but you can do rhetorical textual analysis as well mm -hmm. um i think i was very lucky to be at a place where that was allowed um and then i you know, was able mostly to write the book then post dissertation on a, a, a interdisciplinary fellowship also the university of chicago and the society of fellows where everyone I was talking to, none of them were political scientists. <laughs> so there was a nice time when I didn't have to worry about disciplinary boundaries at all. And I think I've been very lucky that then, even I'm, I'm now in, in a political science department again as a faculty member, but it's a department that let also says, well, yeah, do the work around the question rather than around the boundaries of the discipline. Mm. Part of that comes from, I, I teach at an undergraduate institution. So it's not my job to produce political scientists. Right. <laughs> And I actually really appreciate that because yeah. I think that lets me not, I mean, otherwise, I would, maybe it's also cowardly of me because I'm, I'm not uh, trying to shape and form the discipline. Um, but I'm also not ethically now bound to try and ensure that students get jobs as professional political scientists in a world that assumes that all the teaching jobs are, in fact, terrible adjunct positions that are poorly paid and disrespected. <laughs> so, you know, I, that sense, that's why I love being an undergraduate institution. I don't, yeah. I'm not in the business of, I don't have to be in the business of caring about the boundaries of political science. Right. That was maybe a little roundabout, but no, that's great. Um, I, I, the reason I was asking is in part, you know, um, uh, University of Chicago is in Hyde Park. Mm -hmm. um, it's a great institution in a lot of ways. It also mm -hmm. produces, you know, some economic theory mm -hmm. that fucks up a bunch of the world. Yep. Um, but you know, uh, uh, it's as a an institution it it it's built off of this pretty intense 
racialized violence mm-hmm. in Hyde Park. You know, it's the like, one of the only places spatialized. Yeah, yeah, it's like one of the only places in Chicago that the grid system breaks down, and they've created a kind of citadel. Yeah. Um, uh, in terms of even the way you get into the campus the and private police force CTA so trains do not run directly into the neighborhood they used to <laughs> they were right. systematically removed um, the zoning of Hyde Park was famously when there was rezone so 55th uh, Street used to be one of the, the greatest spots in the world for blues and jazz in anywhere now it is almost barren of businesses and that part of that came out of a the city contracted with the University of Chicago sociology department to identify blighted homes. Hmm. Shockingly, <laughs> within it, and this is, you can, all this history has been sort of documented nicely already, you can go and see how the university master plan was able to then expand the campus precisely into those places that the, their own sociology department had deemed as uh, meeting the requirements for condemnation by the city. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is, it's a deeply messed up institution in that, in a, as you said, um, the most police neighborhood in Chicago. They have two fully functioning police forces. The Chicago Police Department are sworn officers and the University of Chicago Police Department are also right. sworn officers. They both patrol. Um, students famously would be told, and here are the boundaries. These are the exact street. You do not cross Cottage Grove. You do not cross uh, 61st Street. You do not cross 55th Street. Never mind that all the graduate student housing is north of 55th Street. Yeah. Right. Um, those boundaries have shifted in the last decade as the universities moved south into uh, the neighbor into neighbors immediately south of there. Right. So now now it's 63rd Street. You don't go past. Right. Um, and that's been part of their existence. Um, Danielle Allen was there uh, before she moved to Institute for Grand Studies, and she wrote an amazing book while she was uh, the Dean of Humanities at Chicago called Talking to Strangers. Hmm. And one of the things she does there is she gives a reading of, of Arendt and Ellison around school integration, and she does this very interesting rereading of, of Aristotle because she's a classicist. She also included at the end of the book an open letter to the University of Chicago, her employer, basically saying if this institution is going to continue to function as a kind of institution it would like to be, it has to radically rethink its relationship with the very neighborhood that it lives in. And this is it's a wonderful sort of short essay at the end. It's like, what would it mean for the university to not interact with everyone around them as their employees, it's the largest employer on the south side of Chicago, and as their adversaries in that expansion of that, that space? What would it mean to, to act differently as a political institution um and i'm not sure if anyone in the administration ever read that but it was like this amazing sort of piece about like this is what this space is and how that space came into being mm-hmm. um it's not incidental then i think that some of the work that came out of that place um william julius wilson's sociological work on the pathologies around blackness sort of reflects what appears to be very progressive but also very pathologizing understandings of, of race in the United States. And neoliberal economic theory between Columbia and Chicago, this is where human capital theory was invented mm-hmm. by people who routinely and repeatedly said, for good liberal ends, we will solve problems of discrimination and poverty through these sorts of positions. Uh, you, you talk to Gary Becker and you read his stuff and he is he's a good liberal. Mm. And that that when you reconceive of the human as an entrepreneur, as an enterprise subject, this is how we'll re- reorganize uh, educational policy and crime policy and health policy so as to tear down those barriers. And then you can see just the dramatic directions in which that never was going to happen out of that theory. But the well-intentioned liberalism of the University of Chicago has always been sort of part of its problem 
yeah. how it's going to save the south side of Chicago. Yeah. Right? Um, I yeah. love Hyde Park. I miss I lived there for five years. It's yeah. one of my favorite neighborhoods. Um, I love the, the neighborhoods surrounding Chicago. Um, the last few li- years I lived in Chicago, I lived on the north side, and I hadn't realized until then the number of people who've lived in Chicago their entire lives and have never been south of Roosevelt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would say things like, "Well, I just—is it safe?" I was like, well, "You wouldn't go to a White Sox game, like, well, yeah. probably not." But like, <laughs> the, just the the depth of how segregated Chicago is, even though I lived yeah. there for almost ten years, wasn't obvious to me until I lived on the North Side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just people's reactions, like, I couldn't believe that you would ever go south of Roosevelt. Like, well, and and you know, uh, usually it would just to be it would just be to go to the Chicago area yeah. if you were like an academic anyway. Yeah. Um, oh no! So I mean, I remember the. When I was living on the north side and teaching and, and down on the south side, the my commute, it drove me nuts because there's two buses you can take from downtown. Yeah. There's no train, right? Because you can either take the number six, mm-hmm. uh, the express bus, which is a south side serving bus that stops in, stops in uh, Hyde Park, but it does run express from Hyde Park to downtown along Lakeshore. Right. Or you can take the number two. The number two is the law school bus. Uh, and it only runs during rush hour, and it runs from downtown to the midway, and then back again, right? That's it. And I was actually just emailing with a friend of mine who's, who's in Chicago and was telling a story about how he was on the number two and watched a young African-American man get on the bus, pay his fare, get ready to sit down, stop, look around the bus and ask the bus driver, what bus is this? And then get off because he was like, this was not the number six. <laughs> it runs the same route, right? but it's a full, it's almost, it's a neoliberally segregated bus route yeah which is also the fastest way to get to and from the south side if you're downtown <laughs> right so i rode it all the time and i was like yep okay this is the the law school bus this is the business school bus and it's full of white folks who are coming in and out of the neighborhood and the only place they're going is to the university of chicago i mean myself included that's where i was working mm-hmm. like but this is how um there's no way for me not to now be encumbered in this system of uh, specifically geographic public transit enforced segregation yeah um i could drive my own car <laughs> Which is a different way of doing it. It's, yeah, and it's still built on these sort of uh, apartheid kind of policies. I mean, uh, so in Chicago, where like ninety ninety four is where it is yeah. to break up uh, ethnic voting districts. Right, that's right. why the highway runs through those neighborhoods because the dailies made sure that's where you would you would run ninety ninety four. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Chip Gallagher, a sociologist here, who asked you a question mm-hmm. during your talk. Um, I can't remember the sociology term for this, but he, he does a lot of work with, uh, I think it might be called like dissimilarity squares or, or indexes yeah, or something. Um, basically, you, you break up a city just randomly into, you know, uh, uniform squares, and then you you start looking at what the ethnic and racial and class makeup is, and you get a you get a score of zero to 100, zero being like, like it's distributed equally um, and randomly, and 100 being straight up apartheid like and um it's it's pretty remarkable when you see the numbers so uh i can't remember what chicago is i think it might be around 70 um philly it's 81 uh meaning you'd have to move 81 percent of the city around to get an equal distribution of uh you know and so people don't i think uh people don't realize like apartheid doesn't have to happen through uh speaking that word mm-hmm. uh, but it can it can be organized in these really unconscious ways mm-hmm. um i, I think th- it's telling that i think some of the best work and some of the smartest people who've done work on prisons and on um 
incarceration in the U.S. are geographers, mm-hmm. right? And who, who, who use geographic analysis in particular as a place to start. And I mean, there's good precursors for that too. I mean, the end of Discipline and Punish points to the carceral archipelago, right? Yeah. It's a geographical spatial metaphor. And in fact, the whole idea of the perfect prison in Foucault's analysis, like not that there is one, but that that was purported to be one, is always about the spatial arrangement. Yeah. So that that would play out in that way is so, um, yeah, so... Ruth, Ruth, Ruthie Wilson, Ruthie Wilson Gilmore's work on uh, California, for instance, right? So it's a, explicitly paying attention to the geography of how this functions. Dylan Rodriguez's uh, forced passages of paying attention to the, 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 the spatial metaphors between the middle passage and then the passage of prison intellectuals around institutions and facilities, right? Um, so, the, so much good work in geography is, has, I think, pushed that in that direction. The one that shows up, I think, a lot... Um, around questions of voting rights is what gets called a prison-based gerrymandering. Mm-hmm. Um, so the corollary to individuals who are charged with felonies and incarcerated and stripped of their right to vote and yet still are counted for purposes of political representation and funding, um, which has very three-fifths compromise overtones, yes. not surprisingly, mm-hmm. right? You are a person for this but not for that. Right. But the flip of that is we know in the United States the the – the politics and geography of incarceration mixed with the politics and geography of policing pretty much guarantees that you have instances like, so I think them get this right in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, 40% of incarcerated folks come from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. None of them are housed in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. All of the state institutions are in rural communities, which are predominantly white communities. Um, and they're huge economic, the argument is that these are economic boons for those areas. Right. But one of the ways in which they are economic boons is because you change the how, how population is being counted for purposes of representation. Yeah. So Pennsylvania actually has gotten somewhat better on this, this point um, following uh, the work of, of jailhouse lawyers like John Yunt, who was the principal author of Nixon v. Commonwealth here. We were talking about this before, right. beforehand a little bit. Um, and interestingly, it's really hard to strike down felon voting, felon disenfranchisement on the basis of racial animus because it's hard to show that. One of the ways you can do it, at least up until the recent court decisions around the Voting Rights Act, is by demonstrating vote dilution. Mm. So under uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act up until recently, um, you, discriminatory effect is insufficient unless what you can show is that the value of the vote for someone who continues to hold it is being systematically reduced, um, you can't overturn these policies. And so Yunt helped do some of the original research here um, and filed the brief that said, well, what's happening with felon disenfranchisement in particular is when individuals come out of prison in Pennsylvania and return to their communities and can't vote, what you build then are diluted voting blocks. Right. And so what Nixon v. Commonwealth actually strikes down narrowly is the five-year waiting period after somebody comes out of mm-hmm. Pennsylvania prison. And, and the winning argument under jurisprudence was somebody who comes out of jail but does not regain their right to vote but returns to a community now where they can't vote but otherwise could have. Um, and the weird loophole was if you were registered before you went in, you would get your rights back sooner than if you hadn't registered before. It was a very <laughs> weird set of laws. But that was the winning argument. But, well, there's vote dilution happening as a result of that. Now, that only went so far in Mixon v. Commonwealth to strike it down on the basis of ex-felon disenfranchisement. Um, the presence of prisoners in rural districts changing their population counts 
um, has been ameliorated somewhat in Pennsylvania and in New York and in Delaware and California, but across most of the U.S., um, felon disenfranchisement intersects with geography in this very particular way that you disempower predominantly urban, predominantly minority-based uh, neighborhoods mm -hmm. and empower predominantly rural, predominantly white uh, geographic districts. Um, so it's three-fifths plus spatial right. <laughs> differentiation. Right. It's a good moment, too, to think about the difference then between what would mean to reform that practice and abolish it, right? Because the easy reform is, well, let's build prisons inside cities, <laughs> right? You can actually address that problem uh, right. by moving the prisons into the cities. Yeah. Or you can talk about why is it that this is the very – why not start before that even happened and think about the world that wouldn't ever actually warehouse individuals in that way. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, a lot, lot, to, lot to unpack there. Um, I talk too much, sorry. No, no, it's great. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, we do have a jail that's in the city limits. I think it's in the city limits. I take my students. I, I teach a course on religion in prisons. Mm -hmm. um, and Josh Dubler, yeah. who I don't know if you know him, another abolitionist. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, he was just on this as well, and I use his book in that class. Um, and I, I take my students to a, a prison uh, in Philly, um, called CFCF, Curran uh, mm -hmm. uh, Fromhold Correctional Facility. Yeah, right? love the names. Um, and when we were there, there's like a nice little monument um, to to Cromhold and or Curran and Fromhold um, because they were killed in the line of duty. That's mm -hmm. what it says. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, I wonder how that happened. Um, and so I went on and I read about um, two uh, black Muslims. Um, they had been protesting trying to get equal recognition for the practice of religion in a former institution. Mm -hmm. um, they faked a pass and got into these guys' office and then and killed them as like an act of, uh, you know, violent protest. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I was like, oh, that's, that's pretty horrific. I better not tell my students about that because I'm trying to convince them. Yeah. Uh, or I'm trying to talk to them a lot about practice and religion and, you know, if I tell a bunch of white Catholic students, which is what our honors students mostly are, even though the rest of our population's not, and mm -hmm. I'm just going to let that, that fucked-upness uh, sit there. Um, you know, if I tell them that, then it's going to play into a lot of their already uh, uh, racialized and uh, prejudicial ways of understanding that, that group of people. But I started to research more, and the prison that those guys were in charge of is the one that uh, the book Acres of Skin is written about. Have you read really? this? Yes. Yeah, I know it. Yeah, I've yeah. read it in ages. So they, th these people were murdered, yeah. but they also oversaw and allowed yeah. the systematic um, uh, experimentation uh, f that was not consented to mm -hmm. and was not for medical purposes of mostly black uh, people um, who were from this city and lived in this city. And were no. they were just... I mean, it, it's pretty striking um, how uh, criminal... That was, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and so now their name is enshrined on this new yeah. correctional facility. Um, and it's so messed up. It just comes from this like, yeah, well, you know, uh, an attempt to do justice and like remember these people mm -hmm. ends up being a way of uh, occluding the kind of crimes that the wider society allowed to happen. Um, yeah. So I have a friend who, yeah, because I have similar experience going into uh, San Quentin with students. Um, and I had some sort of thing. It was like, well, like we're going to be in San Quentin. This is where like a lot of stuff happened. I don't want to prejudice your your understanding of the space. And we're and going into. I would love to hear more about going into prisons with students because it's one of those things that I find really ethically fraught. Oh yeah, me too. Because, and I try and always talk to my students about. It. I was like, let's be clear. If they're letting us in, 
it serves an interest of theirs. Mm -hmm. And that maybe it's a good interest, maybe it's a bad interest, I don't know. But just notice that this is not, the entering into this space requires that we become complicitous with the purposes of that space. Yeah. And the same is probably true about most spaces, but it's particularly true here, right? And I get into arguments and discussions with my colleagues who all, who, there's a, as being at a Catholic university with a social justice mission, there's lots of really good interest to do work in prisons. Right. And to be the voice in the room that says, if they want us there, we should maybe not do it. And we or find a way to do it that lets us do the work as opposed to the work that they want us to do, right? And that's always tough. So I get weird with students, right? Because anytime I bring students in there, there's no way that that isn't going to serve a set of interests that are outside of my control, yeah. which is fine. That's teaching, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? But so I, like, how much do I want to tell them? What do I need to talk about beforehand? And I, I did have a similar thing where I hadn't given them all this background about the Soledad brothers. I hadn't talked a lot about George Jackson. We hadn't done that because I didn't want right that to be the only thing they were thinking about when they went in. But of course, the first stop on the tour is with the lieutenant telling the violent, bloody story of heroism of the, of the death of George Jackson at the spot where there's a plaque commemorating the, the officers who died during George Jackson's uh, attempt to escape, right? And I was like, well, okay, but what, why, what, what was I thinking? That this, of mm. course, isn't precisely the place that they're going to start the tour. Right. And it's precisely the place where you're going to demonstrate the absolute necessity of the prison and the unthinkability of not having it. <laughs> Can I ask what the race of the lieutenant was? He was African-American. Yeah, so this is, this is one of the things that makes it really difficult um, when you teach this stuff is because, you know, we, I don't know if you've... Uh, if you, I think from reading your work, I know you engage with, with some black studies stuff, mm -hmm. um, but I don't know if you've come across like the work of Frank Wilderson, yeah. um, who, I mean, for me, and I know this is controversial and there's like a whole sort of like divide between Motonists and Wilderstonians, which mm -hmm. I'm just um, uh, more depressed by than, um, uh, you know, and then there's like a sub argument about like, yeah. um, Gordonians and, and you know yeah. it's kind of like and, also, uh, and it turns into this very fraught conversation about Fanon and Fanon's place both yeah. in the canon and not yeah. I was actually just reading Jared Sexton on the plane actually out here oh, okay. so I came to a lot of the Afro-pessimist stuff after I finished this book Yeah. Um, and so and there's a certain degree to which you know the markers of your training show up in these funny places too yeah where even at a place like Chicago, that wasn't a, a literature that you know I was exposed to, and and I'm glad now I have some space to finally broaden out on that. Um, yeah. I mean, I gave a paper at the American Studies meeting for the first time, which I love. The American Studies Association It's where the Critical Prison Studies Caucus me meets, right? And I gave this paper, and it was just suddenly it was like, right? So yeah, you're making Sidney Hartman's argument, right? You're talking about Sidney Hartman. And I was like, yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah. This is how this works. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. allowed to just walk into these spaces and talk like I've been here for years yeah. um, because I'm not barred from entry from these things because of right. these other spaces. And I desperately, in that sense, need to be held to account mm -hmm. for that sort mm -hmm. of stuff. Right. But that, that's not, not to derail. Like, cause well, I mean, and, and I think there is an element so of, uh, like, I think there's an element of, um, like, all, those, all that work is just really vital. And, of course, once it's in an academic zone, it's going to have a kind of academic... Um, academicization happen to it mm -hmm. where it's going to be you know all sorts of of debates but like you know whatever i read every i like read them all because i think there's a lot of really mm -hmm. interesting stuff that's coming out of there and i actually i see a precursor for an engagement in afro-pessimism in your book because the way you use the figure of the slave yeah as the figure that this, marks i wish i'd had people's that literature <laughs> identity yeah. as a constitutive exception to use uh yours and cena's terms yeah um, uh 
I think is really powerful. But I, what I was trying to get at with this 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 questioning about the guard and you know, yeah. was, was he African American? Was you know especially I spend so much time in my classes talking about the racialization, mm-hmm. and then we go into a prison and the PR person is mm-hmm. a black woman, mm-hmm. um, and uh, most of the guards we come across are black men or black women, and and it's really difficult for them because I my students have been hearing from me the whole time like well this is really racialized it's really racialized and then they're like why are all the people uh, working there also black uh, how can this be a racist institution if black people are participating in it and that's a that's a, I feel like it's always a really uh, vital question, um, but one that's really hard to do with undergrads who mm-hmm. you're 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 spending so much time trying to get them to even think that there's something called white supremacy. Right. Um, how did you handle that? Did well. So in the narrow context, um, there was something we talked about. You know, afterwards, it was it was a very interesting thing. It was a part of an alternative break program. Was what mm-hmm. we I sort of was tapping into, and we spent ten days visiting facilities around the state. But part of it, this maybe is, makes it very particular and hard to generalize from, in partic- especially was one of the students involved in it uh, was a really amazing man named Frankie Carrillo, who spent uh, twenty years on a wrongful conviction in California, oh, wow. and um, was then a student at Loyola Marymount. He was exonerated. Uh, he was he was. Uh, framed and coerced and witnesses were coerced by the uh, LA County Sheriff's Department um, of a murder charge when he was a teenager. Um, and so one of the things we were doing is we were going back to most of the facilities he'd spent time in with him. Um, and so to a certain degree, right, which was amazing. And Frank, Frank yeah. is incredible. Wow. He's a wonderful, wonderful, brilliant man. And um, just, yeah, he's, he's just a great guy, just period. Um, but so was, we could have a series of conversations um, with the group of students we were with um, that I think would be hard to have without the presence of somebody for whom prison is anything but an abstraction, mm-hmm. um, for whom long-term incarceration, isolation, confinement is was very much a lived experience for him, right? And one of the things that, that I take away from that is um, it's really, I don't want to say dangerous, very Foucauldian overtones of dangerous, not good or bad, but dangerous, <laughs> to go into those spaces where you and 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 not have meaningful and real conversation with people who are inside because mm-hmm. so much about prison tours is focused on showing you the animals behind the yeah. cages yeah, yeah, yeah. and the rule actually that we we're talking about if we're going to do trips like this in the future the it was a really wonderful radical organizer who does work uh, with the alternative brace program sort of our rule was anytime we do this again we don't go into any facility unless we're guaranteed time to talk with inmates without a guard directly present Oh, which wow. dramatically reduces the number of spaces you can go into. Yeah. But it was like that, if we're just in there doing a tour, it's worse. Right. It's not acceptable. So in that particular case, we had a, a, just a phenomenal resource to talk through some of that stuff. Yeah. And part of it is like, okay, so here's, we can talk more broadly about the Black Power Movement. We can talk more broadly about George Jackson and the Soledad Brothers. We can talk more about what Angela Davis was doing. We can do that. I can fill that sort of in. But at the same time, right, the students on that trip, I won't say, I don't know if they were radicalized, I don't know if they're not, but for many of them, it also reaffirmed their commitment to doing the good social justice work of ministering to people in prison. Yeah. And for some of them, it was explicitly because these are people who need this help. Yeah. And the prison is helping them. And we got to get it right. And for me, that was very dramatizing of like the problem, or one of the problems is that reform is absolutely essential and necessary and continues the very same system that you're, you're dealing with. Um, and I, I, for my arriving as a, identifying as a prison abolitionist came, I think a lot of from, for me, from those experiences mm. and recognizing that 
well, again, to borrow somebody else's language, again, there's a difference between reformist reforms and non-reformist reforms, right? That non-reformist reforms are those which undermine the reasons why you would need reform in the first mm-hmm. place. And critical resistance for years has had this sort of as their internal test. Like, do we do this? Do we pursue this policy or promote this claim? Well, will we be fighting against this change in five years, mm-hmm. right? If so, we have to find a different way to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, California, this is now really dangerously centering around um, gender responsive uh, incarceration, right? So given that the fastest growing of people in the United States are being incarcerated are women, specifically women of color, um, the CDCR in California has in their you know, wisdom noticed that we need to treat women differently than we treat men in our facilities under incredibly flat-footed gender mm-hmm. essentialist notions of mm-hmm. men and women, right? And this has been a set of policies that across the left and right spectrum, prison reform has just jumped on board with and doing gender-responsive programming. Um, pretty much the guaranteed outcome of gender-responsive programming is the building of more jails and prisons um, rather than reducing the number of women who are incarcerated. Right. If that's what a success looks like, I'd rather not. Yeah. <laughs> um, what does it mean to guarantee that the new jail and prison will be beautiful and gorgeous and therefore better than the previous jail by expanding the number of jails and prisons that we have? How at the same time do you say that those individuals who are languishing in incredibly dangerous and violent conditions don't deserve to have those conditions improved any way possible? Yeah. Um, I was at a conference where Susan Rosenberg, a political prisoner, once spoke to this, and the question was asked, like, what happens when our reform, when our need to address the suffering of the other comes into conflict with the abolition of those institutions? And her answer was wonderful, right? It was just like, well, obviously, you have to, you have to respond to the call of the other who is suffering. And that you think it's ever in tension with abolition means your abolition is crap. Hmm. Because if your abolition isn't about alleviating suffering, it's not great abolition. But also, if your alleviation of suffering isn't headed towards the end of prisons, your alleviation of suffering is crap. Right. Um, you ha- that, that's, that's the task, right? That it, it, they have, your abolition has to be motivated by, the, by suffering, the ending of suffering. And your motivations to help others have to be motivated by the abolition of this, this project. Yeah, this this endeavor in that sense of multiracial multiracial white supremacy in that the case. Yeah, well, and right. and I mean I think that's yeah. If if I if I could build my own curriculum for these students, you know, like um, we would we would really get there at, at well, some point. So but it's narrowly it's so dangerous with, yeah. to tell that to white kids. But the text. Oh, so there, there is a text that I find that helps with that question, which is which is Charles Mills's The Racial Contract, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in particular something he says very early in that book. And there's I always show a clip from YouTube that there is of him where he says it even more clearly there where he distinguishes in that book that he's not going to deny that racism exists and racism matters but he says I'm more interested in white supremacy as a political system than I am in racism yeah and the reason is and in the YouTube clip uh, he actually points to is because otherwise the end of the conversation is well look who's in the Oval Office now right right and he says that's fine if what you're interested in is affective interpersonal racism, but if what you're interested in is a political system, the what he says is the distribution of rights and obligations on the basis of a racial distinction, then there's nothing necessarily anti-white supremacist about necessarily yeah, yeah. anti-white supremacist about having a African American in the White House. 
if what you're talking about is the system of how rights and privileges are organized and distributed. Right. So let's not... That so, requires that that very same black president not respond to mm-hmm. black movements. Yeah. Uh, well, and arguably is less able to do so. Right. Precisely right, yeah. because now the intersection between affective racism yeah. and the, the political system of white supremacy. Yeah. So in that sense, then I, I start when I teach the books, like, so here's what we're going to do at least for the next class or two is we're going to bracket the really important conversation about racism right. and talk instead about the system of white supremacy, mm-hmm. which I, this is the virtue of being a political scientist, like, which I know you are all well-trained to do because you're political scientists and you can do systematic analyses. So that's how we're going to talk about it a little bit. The other clip that's good for that is then Jay Smooth. Do you know this? No. Has, Jay Smooth has this great, I always send I him the him. email. Yeah, but he has this great one where he, he distinguishes like, well, you, this is the difference between having the, the conversation about that thing you said was racist versus you're a racist. Yeah. He's like, it might be true that they're racist, but you don't want to have the you're a racist conversation. You want to have the, insofar as you want to have it, the that thing you did or said was racist, mm-hmm. right? You want to shift away from who you are deep down inside, which is the thing people or students especially are terrified of being accused of, right? To, well, that thing that you did was, for these reasons, racist, right? Um, because it's not about you. It's about what you did. And guess what you can do now? You can do something differently if the problem is what you did. Hmm. And it's a very strategic intervention. It's not because it, it, it does skip over some really important questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But a strategic and I think pedagogical intervention is nice about it. Right. This is like, cool. Well, we're going to have a different conversation for a little while. And I think we're all going to have a better conversation as a result. And maybe we'll start thinking about race as a technology or race as a discourse or race as a practice, mm-hmm. which, you know, I, and I, I said it already, but I like Robin James's language for this. But what we're talking about is not simply white supremacy, but multiracial white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Or what Andrea Smith talks about is heteropatriarchal white supremacy, mm-hmm. heteropatriarchal settled colonial white supremacy, right? And, and that makes it harder to analyze. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about structures and systems and not just how you feel. We can come back to that, but at least so much I think about at least my, my students that I encounter, they start from very strongly held and rightfully you know held beliefs about the, the evils of affective racism, but that's their entire conception of where the evil lies. And so if the conversation doesn't discard with that, but also talks about the other spaces where kinds of evil are practiced, regardless of how you feel about it, when we do the affective stuff later, I think we'll actually do the affective stuff later better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in our, our last couple of minutes, I, I want to I hear what, what you're looking to do uh, with your work uh, going forward. Yeah. So, um, I mean, narrowly, one of the things that came out of doing this book was an interest in, in specifically human capital theory mm. and neoliberalism. Um, and so I've got sort of a project I'd like to, to go forward with it. In one sense, it sits kind of between a Foucault studies and sort of history of thought project about the 1960s and 70s in the U.S. about what happened when human capital theory sort of took over all the social sciences. And, and there's this question around Michel Foucault's 1979 lectures on the birth of biopolitics where he focuses on neoliberalism. Um, so that's been sort of a longstanding interest that I want to come back to. And I've thought about sort of a sort of a short little project that tries to both reread Foucault through that intervention and reread human capital theory through Foucault. The danger there for me, though, is it walks right into what I actually take to be an incredibly boring fight that sort of exists now, especially online, about the was Foucault a neoliberal or was he not a neoliberal? Yeah. And it's just I so part of me is like I'm not interested in that because I think 
those those positions are too, obviously too reductive anyways. But also it, it's helping me rethink about what I'm doing with other stuff like the abolition project and doing work with um, on prisons and philosophy wherever I can, right? And like, well, I'm trying to remember why being interested in any of these figures is useful. Um, so I'm at this point right now, I'm really trying to reconceptualize, is there a future for that project? And if there is, it has to be in critiquing some of the stuff I, I think I started thinking about here, critiquing the logic of colorblind liberalism and, and thinking, how is it that neoliberalism and white supremacy really function together? That I'm still only kind of interested in back getting back in the archives with Theodore Schultz's papers and Gary Becker's you know, scribblings and going and doing close, careful Foucault sort of study stuff, if it's going to be useful for saying something or listening differently to what's going on sort of with the current moment of how white supremacy functions through um, discourses of, of free choice and the entrepreneurial enterprising subject who is in fact all the things they consume where in the United States today, that means we consume black culture um, as a way of making ourselves not ever close to blackness. <laughs> um, mm. So again, Robin James's work on this has been incredibly influential for how I'm thinking about it. And Shannon Winnip's work on biopolitics and cool of noting that there's that the way race as a technology is working has been shifted dramatically. Um, I'm trying to figure out what that project sort of looks like. In the meantime, the other sort of stuff I'm really spending a lot of time doing is more editorial work of trying to actually publish stuff in the Abolition Journal, uh, an ongoing project I've been working on with Natalie Cisneros um, with Radical Philosophy Review of publishing pieces on political theory and philosophy under the terms of mass incarceration. So if we are even remotely Marxist about thinking that um, ideology and thought is dependent on material conditions, um, philosophy, I think, professionally and political theory professionally needs to reflect on the fact that the last 40 years of philosophical and political theory, theoretical analysis have occurred under the terms of mass incarceration. What is the effects on how we think from that material reality? Um, so the first installment of that has already come out, um, a set of really, I think, great essays reflecting on philosophy and mass incarceration. And we'll have a second set of essays coming out this year in Radical Philosophy Review collecting more sort of reflections on that, on pedagogy, on uh, colonialism, on settler politics and how they play out under those terms. Um, and then the other thing I'm working on right now is an edited volume with my co-editor, Perry Zern at DePaul University um, on Foucault's legacy with the Prison Information Group. So this is this uh, radical uh, prison reform is sort of what they call themselves, but they were in a reform group. Uh, in the 1970s uh, with Sartre, with uh, uh, Deleuze, with uh, Foucault, and with a whole lot of incarcerated folks uh, from May 68 and often just you know, non-traditional political prisoners, um, this two-year sort of moment where the JEEP, as it was called, um, did a lot of anonymous publications and writing and theorizing and survey work and, and sort of uh, provocative claims. They wrote about George Jackson and Soledad before like, anybody else did. <laughs> um, but thinking about that body of literature in conversation then with Prison Abolition today. So we have an edited volume that will be coming out with Palgrave this year. It collects uh, some pretty great essays by Del McWhirter, Dylan Rodriguez, Stephen Dillon, um, Nancy Luxon, a whole bunch of folks in continental philosophy, in critical ethnic studies, and in political theory to try and think about, again, a similar version of like, what does that practice from the 1970s tell us or help us with for thinking about prison abolition today? Um, and that's going to hopefully be coming out around the same time as uh, Perry's uh, doing a series of translations of a lot of the cheap documents. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I think that's hopefully going to be coming out roughly at the same time. Will be the, f- the first real English language translation of a lot of that stuff, um, which only little bits and pieces uh, have been published in English uh, to date. Uh, of that sort of work. So, but that's I'm doing a lot more editorial stuff now than uh, I have in the past. And, yeah. So that's the conversation with Andrew Diltz for today's episode of My Name Is My Name. I think it's really important to think about politics beyond inclusion in the way that liberal politics has guided our thinking on that. Many of you, no doubt, will have seen the video of the L.A. Police Department murdering a homeless man. And it just reminds me again of how sick our society is where we've made being poor illegal and the punishment for that is always death but to see that sort of sentence being handed out in the way that the police officers did i mean i don't know you can't really say anything now of course the the narrative is coming out they're trying to say that he was a suspect in a robbery questions of whether he was grabbing for one of the officials of the state's gun while he's being held down by three men and tased i don't see how it's possible but i don't know maybe but it is the whole politics that puts into play that situation that ends with him being murdered and it's easy for this to get you know caught up in the sort of twitter pornographic rage machine but it is vitally important that these things be given attention and that you know the society you're a part of and you remember the names of those the society excludes remember his name was africa